Let's go in our Bibles to John chapter 1. This morning we're going to have the focal point be on verse 29. And as you're turning there, I want to speak to you on this subject today, Jesus and Muhammad. It is the 10-year um, anniversary of the attacks New York City, September 11th, 2001. I want to give you just an honest, uh, probably, I would say, what most people would consider to be a politically incorrect sermon. Um, but this is going to be, uh, we're going to look at references from the Bible and references from the Quran. This is going to be uh, honest, it's going to be straight, and uh, the point of this message is not to engender hatred, it's not to um, stir up persecution against Muslims. In fact, uh, the focus and the point and the purpose of this message is so that we as American believers would understand the Islamic world needs Jesus Christ. And that we as confessional Christians who believe that Jesus is the Son of God have a duty, we have an objective, we have a purpose to see Muslims saved. John chapter 1 in the Bible in verse 29, the the picture here is that Jesus is uh, coming for baptism. And the Bible says, the next day he, speaking of John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, quote, Behold the Lamb of God of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold. It means look at, focus upon, turn your direction to the Lamb of God. The One who would be sacrificed. The One who would be killed for the sins of... Who takes away the sin of what? The, the, the whole world. John the Baptist is saying, here is the Savior of everyone who would believe. Now that includes us as Americans. It includes people who have never been to the U.S. So today we're commemorating the 10-year anniversary, the date of the most heinous attack that has ever taken place In modern times, and on U.S. soil, um, every hijacked plane, except for United Flight 93, which crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, found its target. One into the tower, one, one tower two, one found its way to the Pentagon. And United Flight 93, from what we can recollect, the last words of the leader of the resistance who said, we're just not going to take this lying down, Todd Beamer. His last words were, and I quote, let's roll. And they took over the plane. We're not able to, obviously, um, land it safely. And it was um, crashed in a field. And they think that it's very possible that the the objective and the target for that plane could have well been uh, the White House. So what had happened when when the planes hit the building? We we know this story so well. Um, Instead of running away... The firefighters and the police went into the eye of the storm. They went to rescue people. And many of them lost their lives in the process. September 11, 2008, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani quoted the English poet Lawrence Binion. And he said, They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old, speaking of the ones who fell that day. 
Age shall not weary them, nor the years contemn. At the going down of the sun of the morning, we will remember them. And today, we as Christians and we as Americans remember the people who courageously saved others. Even the people who did not have a sworn duty to serve and to protect. I'll tell you the story of an incredible young man at the closing of this message. And out of the, from what we, at this point, uh, counted according to an article, uh, 2,975 people died. And by the way, everything that I'm going to share, some of this will be controversial today. Everything is documented. It should be, if it's not already up, uploaded on the website, you've got a very limited outline in your bulletin. Uh, all of this, including what we will read directly from the Quran, is cited. Uh, surah and Ayat, chapter and verse, all of these articles are um, documented as well. And I encourage you to go there. Um, at the end of this week, the message will be uploaded there so you can listen to it. Also, we have a full manuscript of everything. This is not just something that I'm pulling uh, out of my uh, sleeve. This is all uh, documented, what we're going to look at, that a lot of our politicians and media are too afraid uh, to simply face. But at least what we know, at least 200 people, of 200 of the victims uh, jumped or fell uh, to their deaths on that day. I remember where I was. I was... Um, in a missions class in college taught by Dr. George Jumper. And he informed the class that there was an attack on the World Trade Center in New York City and what we believe to be somewhat of a terrorist attack. So he prayed and he went through the material for the day. And then after class, uh, we all went into the cafeteria and, and huddled around a TV. And I remember watching when the towers crumbled to the ground. I, I can probably, to be very, very, very honest with you, if we can we be honest today? Y'all okay with that? To be very, very honest with you, there was a surge of everything from patriotism to righteous indignation to words that are probably not good. And we found out from what we who believe uh, did this and who was involved, it was just like this tidal wave of emotion came. And me and the other students, and then there were debates about what should be done and and how Christians should react. So here's the question that many people were asking that has not been answered today by our media because they continually simply sidestep the issue. Um, For those of you who may be able to dance, if you can dance, dance to the glory of God. But when you're trying to address an issue, when you try to dance around the issue, it's neither helpful nor productive. So the question is, what on earth would cause someone to do this? We know that all 19 of the the attackers were affiliated some way with a terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda, and uh, they were confessional Muslims. Now, here's the question. Here's the debate. Um, Did their religion have anything to do with the attack, or was it simply the result of a socioeconomic problem that they saw the United States as a superpower economically imposing its will upon the Middle East and other areas of the world? The real question is, is Islam a religion of peace? Is there any correlation at all, is there a connection between the religion of Islam and the attacks? President George W. Bush said, and I quote, Islam is peace. The 9-11 attacks, quote, violate the fundamental tenets of the Muslim faith. Tony Blair, and I quote, The 9-11 attacks has, quote, nothing to do with Islam. Former President Bill Clinton said, Many believe that there is an inevitable crash between Western civilization and Western values and Islamic civilizations and values. I believe this view is terribly wrong. False prophets may use and abuse any religion to justify whatever political objectives they have, even cold-blooded murder. 
Some may have the world believe that God Almighty Himself, the merciful, grants a license to kill. And notice Clinton's phrase here, but that is not our understanding of Islam. Here's the question. Do Westerners understand Islam the way that most of the Islamic world understands Islam? Because there's a vast world of difference between our understanding of Islam and what Muslims outside the West actually practice and understand Islam to be. Um, And we see in America political correctness. Have you guys noticed that? Anybody ever noticed anything? All right. Uh, One example here, and I'm not going to get off on this, but I want to note this, and this is documented as well. Uh, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg um, has excluded clergy, um, evangelical clergy, uh, specifically from speaking um, or participating in the uh, anniversary, the the commemorative um, ceremony. Former professor of mine, Dan Ebert, a brilliant man, he knows, knew so many different languages, he made a quote, and he's paraphrasing um, from the book Islam at the Crossroads, uh, written by Muhammad Assad. He said, quote, failing to understand Islam is to misunderstand the 21st century. In other words, if we miss this, if we as the West think that they believe something that they don't, or if we, if we try to make Islam into something that we understand, saying we're going to miss the whole 21st century, nothing will make sense. We're trying to fix something that we don't really know the problem. And that is even more so because um, there is, according to Pew Forum, uh, there is right now 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. That's a lot of people, isn't it? It's a lot of folks, so we've got a lot of folks in the world who claim this religion, so we as followers of Jesus are called to go into, help me out church, how much of the world? All the world, and make disciples of European nations? Somebody help me out. All nations. So that is our job, so since that's within our sphere, those 1.57 billion Muslims, this is very necessary that we understand uh, what they believe. Now, here's, here's another question. People say, now, Jeff, <clears throat> don't all religions basically teach the same things? Well, yes and no. Basically, every religion in the world, this is on your notes, um, teach, uh, religion basically teaches salvation by works. It means that you get to God, you get to enlightenment, you get to heaven by doing good things, following the set of rituals. So every religion in the world is going to teach some system of works-based salvation. But Christianity is different because it teaches something that's crazy. You see, Jeff, what is the main difference? Obviously, Jesus, right? What is the main difference between Christianity and the other religions in the world? Jesus, right? Well, what is the whole gift of Jesus' sacrifice, his death about? It's about grace. Grace is far above and beyond what we ever deserve. Like mercy would be God not letting us go to hell, like us ceasing to exist. Grace is God giving us, through Jesus, a place in heaven. So grace is the central difference, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. This is the gift of God, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. So another difference here would be that Islam advocates missions via, and you notes militancy. And I have some references there in the Quran. So, Jeff, I don't really know what happened. I mean, how did Islam come about? I'm so glad that you asked that. Here's what we go. Um, In your notes, Islam uh, literally means submission to God. So, So a Muslim is one who submits to God. The Arabic word for God is 
Allah. Many of you are familiar, if you've watched uh, 24 or if you've uh, watched any YouTube videos of the insurgency, you know that there's a very common phrase in the Islamic world, not just by terrorists, but by moderate Muslims as well. Allah hu akbar, meaning God is great. So in Islam, it means that if, if you're going to be a Muslim, you have to submit to God. Well, who is God? Here's how it started out. In 570 A.D. in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, a young man was born. His name was Muhammad. He was reared as an orphan and raised in abject poverty. Very, very poor. But then when he got older, he married a rich widow, uh, Khadijah. And that, that's her name as best as I can pronounce that. So he was looking for Mrs. Moneybags. Y'all okay? All right, I talked to one young guy and I said, you know, what's your, what's your plan, man? Like, well, you know, what do you want to do in life? And he's like, I want to find a rich woman, bro. You know, like, well, that's, you know, shooting high. So, so he married this rich lady. And, and so what did he do after marriage? Well, he began to spend long periods of time in the mountains uh, in deep contemplation, just really thinking and medica- meditating. And when he was 40 years old, uh, Muhammad allegedly received revelations from who he thought was the angel Gabriel. You say, wait, Gabriel? Yeah, he, he believed that the, the angel Gabriel in the Bible gave him these revelations. Well, what did Gabriel revealed to Muhammad. Well, the Quran. At least that's what Muhammad said. Um, a few facts about the Quran. Uh, a Muslim, I, in fact, I have two English copies in my library. If you bring an English copy to a devout Muslim and try to show them maybe some discrepancies or areas that talk about Jesus that are actually very fascinating, uh, the, the uh, Quran actually speaks about Jesus, says that Jesus did miracles. Never claims that Muhammad did miracles. In fact, it says that the Gospels, the New Testament, is something that Muslims should read. It's called the I-N-J-I-L, the Injil or Injil. And you can show that to a Muslim, but they only consider the Quran to actually be valid if it's written in Arabic. So even if we're quoting to them from English, which, by the way, it's a, if, if you ever study language or linguistics, that's a preposterous argument to say that something can only be understood in one language. It's about four-fifths the size of the New Testament. It has 114 chapters, and the chapters are called surahs, S-U-R-A, or plural, with an S on the end, and a verse, like in our Bible, a Bible verse would be an A-Y-A-T, an ayat. And they have it arranged from the longest to the shortest, and it is also considered to be eternal, that there's an exact copy of the Quran in heaven. So, Senator Jeff, where did Muslims, where do they get their beliefs? Well, they believe they get their beliefs from the Quran and also a collection of writings that were composed much later called the Hadiths, which is a collection of uh, sayings attributed to Muhammad by his followers. So, <clears throat> when he received all of these, these so-called revelations... Uh, he began to speak that. You see, Jeff, was there anybody else there with Muhammad when he received these revelations from Gabriel? No, there was no one else. And, and, and let me just put this out before we get in deep. The Apostle Paul says that if there is anyone, even an angel from heaven, who teaches you any other gospel, let him be accursed. That's hardcore. In other words, Paul is saying, you know what, it doesn't matter who you think it's coming from, if there's anybody who tries to alter the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and repentance in and to Him and forgiveness from Him, the only way to heaven, if there's anybody who tries to alter or customize that, reject the message. So when he began to speak this, 
he, he encountered some problems in Mecca, and in 622 he was forced to leave. He goes to Medina and he began to preach it there. People began to believe this new message. Well, what did he do when he was in Medina? He began to raid caravans from his hometown, Mecca. So, uh, Muhammad began to be, I guess, what we could call uh, some type of a, it depends if you want to say a guerrilla fighter or just a plain old robber. Began to, to raid caravans and become very good at that. Later, the Meccans got tired of it and they sent a whole army against Muhammad, which he, he was a very good fighter. He was a military man. He was able to defeat the army. And let me just read to you um, a quotation attributed to Muhammad from the uh, book Sahih Muslim, uh, translated by Abdul Hamid Sakiti. He said, uh, this is what Muhammad said he would do if he captured enemy soldiers. Quote, if God gives me victory over the Quaresh, which is a tribe in the future, I will mutilate 30 of their men. By God, if God gives us victory over them in the future, we will mutilate them as no Arab has ever mutilated anyone. So that meant that if you fought against Muhammad, you didn't want to fall into his hands if you were an enemy soldier. We all tracking with that? All right, we on the same page? <clears throat> well, when he defeated the Meccans, he returned to Mecca with an army, and he gave them a very, a very, very, um, very uh, gregarious offer, very generous um, decision. It says you can convert to Islam and live, or you can remain a pagan, because that was what most... Arab tribes were at that time. They worshipped local gods and deities. He said, you can remain a pagan, but we will kill you. So a lot of people decided they wanted to become Muslims in Mecca. Then he died in 632. And at the time of his death, he had nine wives and one concubine. Concubine would be like a friend uh, with with benefits, a person who he would have relations with. He was was not married. Uh, he was never seen to work a miracle. And it says in the Quran, chapter 33, verse 21, I'm going to use that instead of saying surah and ayat the whole day. Uh, he is, quote, an excellent example and a noble pattern for all Muslims. Now, that kind of clashes with Jesus, right? A little bit. Anybody, anybody pick up on that? A little, little bit of a difference when Jesus was rejected from his hometown, when, when Jesus was pushed Away, uh, Muhammad went into uh, the the thriving business of preying upon caravans to where Jesus um, said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Let me give you the five pillars of Islam. Some say there's six in practicality. Number one is the confession of God's oneness, which is shahada, meaning God is one. Number two, ritual prayer, salat, S-A-L-A-T. If you ever hear a Muslim say salat, they probably mean they're going to go to mosque most of the time on a Friday and they're going to, they're going to be involved in prayer, which is like our church service. Number three, mandatory, mandatory charity. Now, some of you cheap Baptists are going to love this. It's called the zakat. And as a Muslim, you're required to give 2.5%. Hey, can I get an amen from any disobedient church members? I praise God, no more tithe, right? All I have to give is 2.5. Number four. Y'all okay? It got really quiet. Number four, observance of Ramadan, I called Son. And number five is the pilgrimage to Mecca called the Hajj. Now, number six, uh, there is probably no Muslim that would say there are six pillars of Islam, but in practicality, there's some word that most of us are familiar with someone, and it's the word jihad, which means to fight or to struggle. There are seven principles of Islam. If you can write quickly or if you have a very good memory, jot these down. Number one, Allah is the one God, creator, sustainer, and sovereign lawgiver. Number two, the Holy Quran is the word of Allah. 
Number three, the messenger of Allah is Muhammad and he is the last prophet. It's very interesting that Muslims believe, um, this was, and uh, I knew this, I thought I did, but then I interviewed a, an imam at a former, um, where I used to live <clears throat> in a city. I went to the mosque and set up an interview and asked him some questions. I wish I had time to go through that with you here today, but I'm just going to give you the skinny of it. Um, he, they consider the Old Testament prophets to be legit. In fact, they consider Abraham to be a great model uh, of faith, and they consider Jesus to be a prophet. And we'll talk about how that is dangerous in just just a few moments. Number four, they believe that Allah has angels, and then they believe that their jinn, J-I-N-N, are like demons, demonic spirits. Number five, they believe in the last day, judgment day. Number six, they believe in the predestination of all that happens. They have a phrase uh, that, that, that says, if Allah wills it, if you call uh, the local mosque uh, in Roanoke, they will say, we will get back to you uh, if Allah wills it, or something uh, to that effect. And then jihad. Uh, that is a principle within Islam. What in the world is jihad? So instead of <clears throat> going to a Christian apologetics website to try to get what a Westerner thinks jihad is, let me read to you from a Muslim author here. Uh, his name is M.J. Akbar. He wrote the, sh- wrote the Shade of Swords, Jihad, and the Conflict Between Islam and Christianity. Very interesting title. And I quote from his book, he says, Jihad is the holy war, the war of righteousness, the struggle against tyranny. It is a passion indifferent to the fate of battle because the jihadi, person who is engaged in jihad, wins either way. In the long run, the war will be won. In the short run, death will bring martyrdom in paradise. Some, simultaneously, the strife is also to cleanse one's soul, for no martyrdom is possible without inner purity. So, jihad has two meanings. Number one, it would be the struggle against your lower desires. The things that you do that you know that you shouldn't do, and you try to stop. Number two, jihad is an outward military, <clears throat> outward military struggle against non-Muslims. And ISIS Imam, I said, now is that primarily a defensive strategy for Muslim lands that are attacked by the infidels or the kafirs, as they say, unbelievers? And he said it can be both. So within Islam, even here, and I'm not sure what the, the local... Um, uh, leaders of Islam teach here in Virginia. In many places around, around the world, they teach that, yes, it, it, it is. Now, a very moderate Muslim would probably uh, disavow this as a liberal Christian would disavow the fact that the Bible speaks about hell. You guys catch that? All right? There, 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 there's a difference today between a person who says, I'm a Christian, but don't believe the Bible. And then there, there is somewhat of a correlation between Muslims today who says, I'm a Muslim, they don't really practice the Quran. Um, a place that I was able to go several years ago uh, on a trip in uh, Central Asia, many of the people there are very moderate. They don't, even go to, they don't even go to mosque. They are just simply Muslims by culture. They don't actually practice Islam. A person who actually practices Islam will tell you, if they're being honest, that the word jihad in the Quran means, yes, a struggle against your lower desires, but also an outward military struggle that can even be offensive. 9-11. Senator Jeff, how has this happened in the past? I'm so glad you asked. Let me give you a little bit of history about how this has, has come about in the, in, in the world, and a lot of times this does not get taught in schools because it's very politically incorrect. Uh, first off, jihad from the beginning. What happened after Muhammad died is people actually took what he said as gospel truth, and they began to wage war against non-Muslims. 
Uh, the city of Constantinople was, uh, had siege laid to it less than 40 years after Muhammad's death. And then even again in the 8th century, they began to spread into fights. The Muslims invaded Western Europe, and some of you historians know that Charles Martel, uh, otherwise known as the Hammer, a great fighter and general, uh, stopped the Muslim advance in Tours, France in 732. And we know from just our basic 8th grade history class that Spain was under Muslim domination for over 800 years, at least the large majority of southern Spain. You say, now Jeff, what about the Crusades? Were the Crusades bad? Yes. What I'm about to say, I'm in no way defending what was done in the Crusades. But may I remind you that the jihad that was waged against Europe predated any of the Crusades by at least 400 years. So if you're a European, you realize that there's this new religion and they continually take over and say, convert or die, convert or die, convert or die, convert or die, convert or die. And then they're coming to the very gates of Europe. And after a while, they said, you know what, we need to do something. Now, the way they handled it was terrible. You don't commit atrocities in order to stop uh, your enemy. But there was a, uh, you say, Jeff, what would happen if, if, if they were able to, to get together in, in a united front, those who believe in jihad? Well, we have a perfect example called the Ottoman Empire. This is from Turkey. Um, what they would do, they, they, they ruled the world, that area of the world, for around a thousand years, the Middle East. They would, they would go into Eastern Europe, and they would, um, they would find the big boys, the strong boys, and they would take them away from their parents and brainwash them to be fighters for the sultan, the, the, the caliph, the leader of the Islamic world. They were called Janissaries. In Europe, these people were feared because they were taken from their parents, like I said, at a young age, and taught to be to fight to the death. Kind of like Spartans, but jihadis. And Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey, was a Christian area, but it fell in 1453. It couldn't withstand the Muslim advance any, any longer. And uh, Vienna, Austria. Uh, the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, put siege to Vienna in 1529 and also in 1683. And they said that had the Turks not been stopped there, there would have been nothing to stop the Muslim advance to take over all of Europe. Now that would change the world pretty much, wouldn't it? Because not long before that, there was something that broke out in Europe called the Reformation. When Martin Luther began to really study the Bible and he got saved and they began to preach that, other people got saved. The Bible began to be translated. Had the Muslims not been stopped at Vienna, there would probably have been uh, no Reformation. So the, the Ottoman Empire in 1683, the Vienna was under siege. This was the last, I guess you could say, the last Alamo that would stop the advance into Europe from the Muslims. And on September, this is, this is very, very interesting. September 12th, 1683, there was a Polish leader named John Sobieski who came to the defense of the Austrians and won the battle and was able to push the Muslims out of Europe. So if you have any, uh, any of your Polish descent, ever heard of Polish jokes, just say the, Pol- the Poles saved Europe. That's, that's a historical, historical fact. And it's very interesting because it was on September 12th that Islam lost the battle for Europe. So now, Jeff, what in the world could inspire these people to do something like this? To, to, to not expand their empire for the sake of the, quote, the glory of Rome or the strength of the Greek city-states, but for the glory of 
Allah, the glory of God. Like, I'm going to come and kill you and raise your city to the ground because you're an unbeliever in my way of thinking. Let me, let me read you a few verses from the Quran. Number one is from uh, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Quran says, Kill those who join with other gods. With God, wherever you may find them, and seize them, besiege them, and lie wait for them with every kind of ambush. But if they shall convert and observe prayer and pay the obligatory alms, then let them go their way, for God is gracious and merciful. Now, you could live in, uh, in a Muslim land if you were non-Muslim, but you had to pay a tax. Uh, you would be called a dimi, in other words, a second-class citizen that had to pay a 29% or higher annual income tax just because you were uh, non-Muslim. In chapter 4, verse 76, the Quran says, Those who believe fight in the cause of God. Chapter 8, verse 12 says, I will instill terror into the hearts of the infidels. Strike off their heads then and strike off from them every fingertip. Chapter 4, verse 78. They who believe fight on the path of God, and they who believe not fight on the path of the God, a reference to Satan. Fight, therefore, against the friends of Satan. Remember Saddam Hussein, when he was alive, continually referred to the U.S. as the great what? Satan. Chapter 9, verses 123. Believers, wage war against such of the infidels as are your neighbors, and let them find you rigorous, and know that God is with those who fear Him. So if you're just going to simply read what the Quran teaches and take it at face value, that's a fairly natural outcome to would and be engaged in jihad. You say, now Jeff, what are the differences between Islam and Christianity? Well, if you're listening, you may have noticed a few. Alright? You guys okay? May have noticed a few subtle differences between the two. Number one, let me, let me list several. Uh, in Islam, uh, Muslims deny that God loves sinners. We believe, as the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means that here we are unlovable, but God being who He is, love, decides to love us first. Amen, church? It all starts with, with God. But, but in Islam, I'm not going to give you the references, I'm just going to read, read it straight to you, uh, does not believe that God loves sinners. And I quote, To those who believe and do righteousness, God will assign love. God loves not the unbelievers. God loves not the impious and sinners. God loves not evildoers. God loves not the proud. God loves not transgressors. God loves not the prodigal. God loves not the treacherous. God is an enemy to unbelievers. And finally, to those who believe and do righteousness, God will assign love. That means in Islam, if you desire to experience God's love, you must first love God. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature. Have you guys noticed that we're a race of sinners? Anybody? Right? Like you don't have to teach kids when they're two how to lie. How to be disrespectful. The fact that we have no love outside of God means that there's no way I can love God unless He loves me first. You see, it has to begin with God. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, that if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans do the same? Do not even the tax collectors and the crooks and the cheese, don't they do the same? So, so please don't miss this. In Islam, you have a deficient view of love that even we can recognize is not being worthy of even a friend, much less God. Because we believe that God is so powerful and so loving that His love overwhelms us. Amen, church? 
and that He loved us first. And that's the only reason why we can ever love God or love anybody else. But in Islam, you have to love God first. Number two, Muslims deny that Jesus is the Son of God, but affirm that He is a prophet of God. Number three, Muslims deny the Trinity. They would say that if you say that God exists, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you commit the unpardonable sin of shirk, S-H-I-R-K, to associate anything with God other than oneness. When the testimony is clear from Scripture that God is a triune being. And Jesus obviously spoke about God if you want to define Him as a prophet in that sense. But man, Jesus is so much more. Jesus is everything. He is the Son of God. Number four, Muslims deny salvation by grace through faith. I'll read you a reference uh, from the Quran. And some of you are going, I hope, but some of you may believe that you're a Muslim in your understanding of salvation. This is even in the South. Check it out. Quran says... Chapter 23, verses 102-103. Then those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they will attain salvation. But those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls and hell they will abide. So in Islam, that's why you see people so desperate to get God's forgiveness. Even to the point of, uh, of killing themselves. Because you've got to make sure your good outbalances your bad. Well, man, when we see our sin, we realize there's nothing that we could ever do to unbalance that church. Right? When we saw we were sinners and we realized that when Jesus paid the debt, that was all the balancing required. Number five, they deny that Jesus was crucified. You can download all this from the website. I'm not going to go into the detail on it is Quran chapter 4, uh, verses 157 through 158. They deny that Jesus was crucified. In fact, all the gospel writers say that he was. In fact, even secular historians, Josephus and Tacitus, Tacitus was a pagan Roman, uh, recorded that Jesus, that Jesus was crucified. Let me give you a few verses that contrast Jesus and Muhammad. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, 44, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Some of you know this by heart. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's what Muhammad said. Chapter 43, verses 3 and 4. When you meet the infidels, strike off their heads until you have made a great slaughter among them and of the rest make fast the fetters. In other words, chain them up, make them slaves. Jesus said, as we read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Muhammad said in Surah chapter, chapter 8, verse 60, against them, speaking non-Muslims, make ready your strength to the utmost of your power, including your steeds of war or your war horses. Here's the, here's the purpose, and I quote, to strike terror into the hearts of the enemies of Allah and your enemies and others beside them whom you may not know, but whom Allah doth know. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Muhammad said, Allah hath purchased of the believers their persons and their goods for theirs in return in the garden of paradise. So for those who, who, who Allah has saved, if you could use that term, what's the purpose? Muhammad explains. They fight in His cause and slay or kill and are slain or are killed. 
a promise binding on him in truth. You see, in Islam, it requires, in some senses, if you read it very literally, that the best way for you to secure salvation for yourself in heaven is to die in jihad, where the gospel is so amazing and it says that Jesus died for you. Amen, church? He died for you. Senator Jeff, what are we supposed to do about this? Well, here's a few tips on how to witness to Muslims. Number one, use the law. Use the Ten Commandments to bring the knowledge of sin. Walk through it. Show them how they, uh, just by their own confession, have you ever told a lie? Uh, yeah, what are you, a liar? Have you ever looked in lust, adultery of the heart? Have you ever stolen anything, even small? Have you ever said anything that's been disrespectful to God or anything in anger? Yeah. What about that scale? Boom. Your scale just got bottomed out, bro. What are you going to do about that? Well, I'm going to try to be good. Well, how can your goodness really... I mean, it, are you God? Ask, ask him, say, are you God? No, no. Well, then how do you expect to be able to pay a God-sized debt to God? Because that's what paying for one's sin is. Number two, magnify the justice of God. They've got a pretty good grasp on this. Say, God is just and He will not. Simply say, well, your scale is bottomed out over here. I'm just going to overlook that. You've been a good Muslim. I'm going to let you into heaven. Say, no, God is just. So once they get really lost, then number three, explain the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. We had a translator who worked with us on a trip overseas, and he was Muslim. And we were going into areas that had been open to the gospel after the fall of the Soviet Union, and he was there. He was translating from, from, from English to the language we were speaking in, he was translating the gospel. And, and, and our other translator, who was a believer, she began to ask him, why don't you repent? Why don't you get saved? They're very direct over there. Over here, we're like, chill out, you know? Have some southern sweet tea, you know? Here's a bulletin. Like, don't, you know, get all fired up. Like, why don't you repent? You know, just all on him. And then I, but before we left, I tried to talk to him, but I was like, Lord, I don't really know what to do. And the Lord kind of just gave me this sense and said, why don't you, why don't you write him a letter? So... I just wrote, wrote a letter. I didn't want to be weird or, or creepy, but I just, I just wrote a letter to him how I appreciated him as a person and just explained the gospel and how Jesus could save and change his life. But we got to go back the next year, and, and he, he, he was there. He was translating again. And he said, I, I've got something to tell you. And th- th- this, is, this is a confessional Muslim. If you look at if you look at him, if I were to show you a picture, you wouldn't think he's Bubba from Alabama. You guys tracking with that? All right, like he, he's a Muslim dude. He said, "I've got something to tell you." He says, "I've become a Christian." See, Jeff, are you saying that your letter did it? I don't know. He had heard the gospel. He had been translating the gospel. Let me, let me tell you something. When you, when you emphasize the love and the grace of God, I have a friend that I went to seminary with. He was an African Muslim. And he's so, I, I, maybe he's, he preaches now. I would love to get him to come preach. He's probably one of the funniest preachers I've ever heard in my life. He's got this very interesting accent. I'm not going to try to do it to you. But he said that growing up, he was told that the greatest ideal that he could achieve would be to, as he said, would lead me to blow myself, blow myself up. And the English is still a little, little fractured there. And he said, I would always tell them, show me how. <laughs> That's a novel idea. 
Well, if it's so great, you know, why don't why, you know show me first? And but, but he said that there there was a missionary there in, in his country, which is a very Muslim nation. And the missionary came, and and he was a kid who didn't have a very good background. This this missionary, he said, I was sitting there on the street, and the missionary came and he befriended me and began to talk to me, explain to me. And man, the dude the dude got saved. He's preached at some amazing large Baptist churches and different churches, not just Baptist. He's he's preach he's preaching the gospel because somebody cared enough to give money on Sunday so that a missionary could go over to a Muslim nation and find this 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 black African Muslim teenager and lead him to Christ and he's come over here and he's so cool like kids just respond to him and he's able to continue to preach the gospel. Only God can do that. Amen, church? You see, that, that, that's the reason why I'm explaining all this. It's not, not that we should be angry against them. And, and, and but you say, Jeff, what do you think about war? Read the newsletter. I, I outlined what I believe the Bible teaches about a just war. And I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. But, in, uh, but for us, our job is to simply share the gospel. Finally, we should emphasize the trustworthiness of prophets. They believe that Jesus. This, this is so cool. This is so cool about about witnessing the Muslims. They believe that Jesus is a prophet. So here's what you do: you, you say, "Okay, now are prophets good men?" Yes, absolutely. Was Abraham a good man? Yes. Jesus? Oh, yes. Muhammad? Yes, yes, yes. Well, do prophets lie? Are they liars? No. No, prophets don't lie. If they lied, they're not a prophet because prophets don't lie. Prophets are truthful. Say, so, well, well, well what, what did Jesus mean in John chapter 14, verse 6, when the prophet said, Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer that Jesus is saying the only way to the Father is except through me. And if you really don't get it, you can translate that one preposition different. You can say, Jesus said, it is only through me, right? It is all. You guys with that? A little tacit humor there, okay? And in and, and, and this, um, I, I met a, another Muslim guy on a trip several years ago, and he ended up coming to America to be trained with NATO. He's one of these guys that jumps out of planes with an AK-74 and a parachute and parachutes, and and he was actually training to to be in the anti-terrorism unit of of his of his country. And so he came uh, to Texas, and I was able to meet up with him and bring him to Fort Worth for the weekend. We had a big party for him uh, there at my apartment, and uh, we were able to share the gospel with him. He didn't become a believer. But when we begin to go down this line of reasoning right here about Jesus being a trustworthy prophet, and then when you read the words of Jesus, Jesus is saying it's through me that there you, you I think we heard it, but it's kind of, it kind of sounds like this. Those gears begin to turn in the mind and say, okay, if this, then this, and if Jesus is a prophet, then he said that he was more than a prophet, and then what do I do with that? I don't want to be a Jonah. So Jeff, what do you mean? Jonah was from an area that had been attacked by a terrorist nation. Israel had been attacked, the northern kingdom, by, um, by the Assyrians. Assyrians did a lot of really bad stuff, tortured people to death. Anybody remember the story when Joseph, or when, when Jonah, um, 
he ran away. What's like, what's Jonah's problem? Like, why don't you just go and tell him the message and then be done with it? Well, he knew that if he told him the message, they may repent. If they repent, may, if they repented, God would not nuke them. All right. It's very easy for us as Americans to get passionate and forget that if it were not for the grace and the gospel of God, we too would be lost. We too would be in bondage, and we too, without Christ, when we die would go to a place called hell. I've been praying all this week, say, God, help me not be a Jonah. I don't want to put, I don't think there's a, that there has to be a clash between patriotism and being a prophet. Patriotism and telling people the truth. But I warn you and I beg you and I plead with you. I know we've watched, I know we've watched Delta Force, right? And we see Chuck Norris just taking out terrorists and we're like, get some! Get them, Chuck! I think there's a place for that, and once again, I refer you to the newsletter for, for the proper avenue of, of military force. But for those of us who are civilians and here and now, I beg and plead with you that we would pray for the Muslim world. Say the story about him. Um, out of all the stories that I read about 911, this, this really stood out. There's a young man named Wells Remy Crowther. And you can look this up. You can just go and Google, type in the man with the red bandana. He went to Boston College, was a lacrosse player, played a lot of sports. He was working um, in the World Trade Center. And when the, the plane uh, slammed into the sky lobby, uh, there was uh, one lady who, who was a survivor, Ling Young. She said when she sat up, she tried to uh, adjust her glasses and there was blood all over her face and people were dead. And she said, I, I think I'm possibly the only one alive. <clears throat> and I'll read to you from, from the article. Uh, this is from CNN's website. Eyewitnesses reported that after the plane had hit into the sky lobby, a man suddenly appeared, quote, out of nowhere. He was stripped to his T-shirt and wearing a red bandana to cover his nose and his mouth, protection against the smoke and debris. Eyewitnesses report that the man spoke calmly with authority. Survivor Ling Young remembers Wells's command. He came in and he said, I found the stairs, follow me. So he found people on the 78th floor and once carrying a woman all the way down to the 61st floor and handing her off to a fireman who got to a working elevator instead of going down to save himself, he went back up. Ling Young also said, without him, I would not be here. He saved my life. Another survivor, Judy Ween, said, If he hadn't come back, I wouldn't have made it. People can live 100 years and not have the compassion and the wherewithal to do what he did. When firemen took the ones he had saved down, which they believe it was at least 12 people who this young man had saved, instead of going to safety, he went back up. And then when the towers crumbled, his mother watching on the TV, who he had contacted shortly before, simply a quick voicemail, Mom, I'm okay. She said, I knew that he was lost. I say, Jeff, what are we supposed to do about all this? I'll let you know, friends, that we have a distinctive badge. He wore a red bandana that his dad had given him as a young child. He'd always carried it with him. We carry the blood-stained message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? And when people are dying, when people don't know how long they have left, when the, when the planes slam into the building, so to speak, of things that we haven't foreseen, we don't know when we're going to die, 
we take the Gospel. We take the Gospel into the thick of the fight. And please, please hear my heart on this. There's a great temptation to run away from danger. To say, let's just leave the Islamic world. To hell with them. And sometimes people may not say that, but honestly, that may be sometimes the way that, that we feel. But may it be that through our giving and through our missions work, that when it's all said and done, and we're around the throne of our Lord Jesus. Revelation 7 that we've referenced so many times, it says there will be people from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It may be that in that majestic presence of the Almighty Savior, that if we're able to simply lift our eye to the side, we could look over and see a dark-skinned Middle Easterner or someone from Central Asia who was raised to believe that Jesus is not the Son of God, but through our being radical and through our giving and through our selflessness and simply saying, I'm going to count my life cheap for the Gospel, they would be in heaven through the sacrifices of us and the power of Christ. Say, Jeff, what is our message to the Muslim world? John 1.29 Behold Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is Lord of all. And that includes Muslims.